You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Let's turn in the scriptures to uh, Romans. That's where we're at. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. You can turn on your way there. And as you're going there, I realize Oliver, wherever Oliver is, I am sorry. I think I was supposed to put your picture. I had it. I got it on my phone to put on the slide, and it didn't get there. So Oliver's picture is is in the front entrance, and you can look at it from last week, along with Malachi, and uh, he drew for us last week. So sorry about that, Oliver. Um, but we are in the middle of Romans 3. We just looked at verses 1 through 8 last week, and we're in verse 9 this week. This seems pretty loud, but you can probably hear it really good. So we'll just go with it. and. Uh, just flag me down if you need something different. But, okay, all right, good. All right. Well, let's settle in. Let's come to God's word. Here we are, verse 9. And now let's hear from the Lord here. God's word says this. What then, Paul asks, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray again as we think on this. Lord, again, we just come to you this morning asking for your, your work in our hearts and lives as we, as we begin to study your word. It is your word. What the text says is what you have said. And so help us to treat it that way. These are not just... This is not just good counsel from sages of old. We're not just some, some letter. We know it's a letter, but Lord, this is your inspired, breathed out word through the human authors you used. And so we want to come under it. We want to hear from you. And I pray for each heart gathered today in, in as varied different ways and having different weeks coming into this place. Lord, again, Providentially, each one is here by your grace and by your plan. And so would you work within each heart today as we hear from you in your word and think on it together. And we pray for your guiding hand by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the all-wise and providential way of God, here we are on uh, May 8th, Mother's Day. And I'm, I'm tempted, although my family will find this fine, I'm tempted with this particular passage to preach what I've joked about as the shortest sermon I could ever preach. And it goes like this. You'll catch it when you see the passage. You're all a bunch of sinners. Let's pray. 
That's, that's the short version of it. Now, let's hear that with grace, but hear that. But, um, but alas, today is, is Mother's Day, and should not a good, you know, if you think of a good Mother's Day sermon, should it not come with some encouragement to moms, build your moms up in your important work that you're doing, but instead, the charge today is you're all under sin. We all are under sin. The fact is, though, to the moms specifically, you already know this. This is something you know, or I hope you know this already. Your mothering is tainted by sin. And by the way, so is your husband's fathering and, and the children that you have, those loving children who are going to give you a flower today, are tainted with the same sin. The, the great reality here is that no, no Mother's Day card no expensive amount of flowers or a great and glowing post about you as a mom on Facebook. No words of affirmation can truly take away what you know to be your own failures as a mom. Your mothering is tainted by sin because you, mom, are a sinner. What a great start we were off to, right? Please don't walk out moms. Hang in there to the end as we think on this passage today. We are in uh, part seven of a series now. Paul doesn't say, here's my series, but I think in some ways he's been seeking to answer the question, and you've seen it in your bulletin, you look at the sermon titles, have been about the same every week, just part one, two, and three. Why do we need saving? The question, why do we need this? Drilling down to the foundation of why do we need salvation at all? And so in part one, we looked at Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 23. Why do we need saving? Because God's wrath is upon unrighteous men and women. God's wrath is upon them. That's why we need saving. Then we looked at verses 24 through 32 of chapter one, and we need saving because we want other things. We want something other than God. Our passions want other things than him. We went into chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. We need saving because we do the same things. We who maybe look down on others and say, oh, look at them. We do the same things and we face the same judgment. And then going further into chapter 2 and 12 through 16 in part 4, we look, why do we need saving? Because the law for the Gentile is written, what's written on everyone's heart. We know there's a conscience, conscience, conscience going on in the Gentile. And then in verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2, why do we need saving? Because it's not, it's not having the law like the Jew who had the law, who had possession of it. It's the doing of it that justifies. Well, and then just last week in chapter 3, we began verses 1 through 8. Why do we need saving? Because God is right to condemn the unrighteous. He is just to do that. And so then we come. Here's part seven, kind of this climax, if you will, in verses 9 through 20 of what Paul has been taking us through here. And I'm going to set it up in a, in a if you can just imagine a courtroom setting. Imagine Matlock. Matlock, I watched him maybe a little bit. Maybe some of you older ones would know Perry Mason more. This, there's this courtroom setting going on. And here's Paul, maybe in a way he's the prosecuting attorney. And so the, I, I see three parts here just to use for illustration. That he's going to present an opening statement. 
You know, they give the, the, oh, the opening statement. Here's, here's what's going on, kind of the, the summary. Then there's going to be exhibits, and he's going to pull out, we'll call them exhibits A through Z, exhibits of this problem, this prosecution of the sinner in the courtroom, and then, and then a closing statement that we'll look at at the end in this prosecuting of our guilt before a just and holy God. So first, let's look at the opening statement, if you will, uh, in verse 9. Look at verse 9 as we come back into our text where he asks the question, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, if you've got an ESV version, you've got the word uh, Jews in there. Paul is asking, it, it assumes Paul is asking whether the Jews are better off. And if you've got really good eyes, you can see there's a number one there, and it says the Greek. really just says, are we better off? There's, the word for Jew is, is a translator's kind of, we, we think this is where, what he's referencing. But if you've got like an NASB or others, it just says, really, are we better off? And we can try to answer, who's the we? Who's better off? Is it, is it, is it the Jews like the ESV here has? Maybe, it's, maybe now he's speaking, he's speaking, spoken to Gentiles, um, to the Jews, and now he's speaking to maybe Christians, maybe Roman Christians that felt, you know, all this talk of the Jew and the Gentile or the Greek. Well, we're better off, really. I mean, we're the Christians. Or maybe he is perhaps speaking to Gentiles. I lean towards this being for that he's speaking, are we, like he would be saying, are we Gentiles any better off? Just because the emphasis has been on the Jew here. Either way, I, I don't know for sure what it is. Either way, though, Paul, he's combating the notion that anyone is better off. You can just put that in there. Is anyone better off? Because look at, he's answering. The answer to this question is clear. No one is better off. If not the Jew, the Jew is not better off, the Greek is not better off, fill in the blank, they're not better off. All are under sin. Now Doug Moo, who I quote probably every week here as I use his commentary and others as we go through, as I study through Romans, he writes this. He says, the problem with people is not just that they commit sins, Not just that they commit sins. The problem is that they are enslaved to sin. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin. A power found in and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The universal plight of Jew and Greek, or you're from Minnesota, or you're from Iowa, the universal problem is being held under sin's dominion and power. That means that you and me and your kids are born in captivity to sin. And unless God does a gracious work in the heart, that's where we remain enslaved to sin. To further this charge then, Paul turns to Scripture. And in the first part of verse 10, you see these, at least in the ESV, these four words, as it is written. This is a beautiful phrase here. Just we could cruise over it. I won't spend much time on it, but it's beautiful. And we've seen it before. I think this is the fourth time this as it is written comes out already in this book. And I, it might come up, I think, a couple more times as we go through here. As it is written. What's Paul saying? What am I saying? We're saying that this, 
These ideas about sin and being under sin and its dominion and its power and what it does, this is not just some pastor's idea. Mike said, we're just going to talk philosophy. I think this is the way to go. It's written. So Paul's saying this is not, it's written. It's, it's scripture. It's not what the latest poll, you know, take a poll of people. What do you, what do you think? You think we're all sinners? You think we're under sin? It's not a poll. It's not just what people think or believe. It's what's written. It's what God says. And Paul builds his doctrine here. I would say big time the doctrine of the sinfulness of man, sometimes called total depravity of man. He's building that doctrine on scripture. That's where it comes from. Doctrine's not a scary word if it takes us from the word and then to our lives and we see what, who God is. How, how do we understand who God is? It's through his word. How do we understand our problem? His word. How do we understand the solution? His word. All of it is found in God's word as it is written. And so Paul now quotes some scripture. Let me read verses 10 through 12 again. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Who's righteous? No one. Who understands? What's the answer? No one. Who seeks for God? No one. They've all become worthless. They've turned aside. Who does good? No one. Not even one. Do you, do you hear the point of Paul? Just kinda, it's just repetitive. And when you see repetitive things, it's good to take note. So we don't need to know the Greek to, know, to say, Paul's trying to get at something. I think nobody is righteous. That's the point here. I want you to head to Psalm 14. We won't look at all of these. I think there's maybe nine total. But head to Psalm chapter 14, Psalm 14, where much of this is coming from. And so I want you to just see it where Paul is getting this from. Now there's a, I believe it's Psalm 53 would be the other kind of parallel section of this. But we'll look at Psalm 14, in particular verses 1 through 3 here. Now, if you remember back as you're turning there, Paul says in the beginning, in verse uh, 10 it is, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. But if you come to Psalm 14 and you look at the first verse, let's see what's there. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, Paul says there's none righteous. We come to Psalm 14 and that's, that's not what the psalm says in verse 1, and so what's going on here? I, I don't think Paul is trying to make up or replace Scripture. I think what he's doing back, if you remember back in Romans 10, he's making a general statement here from which the others are going to follow. Now, we could say that maybe Paul in that first line, there's none righteous, is actually quoting um, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 that says this. says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So maybe he's pulling right away from there, and then he's heading to Psalm 14, as we'll see in a little bit here. There's other scriptures which could, which could make the same summary point as well. There's other places. We just don't find it exactly here in Psalm 14. More, I think, of Paul summarizing the idea. There is none righteous. But then do look at verse 2 of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. 
to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So the Lord is looking down. There's kind of a question. Are there any who understand? Are there any who seek me? Paul answers the question in Romans 3, no. None understand. No one seeks God. In essence, no one thinks rightly about God in the mind, and no one pursues God from the heart. They don't understand. They don't seek. So it's not as the one who is enslaved to sin somehow on his own magically begins to seek God. Sinners do not seek God, which is really the miracle that any of you who are seeking God are doing that. That's a miracle of God to do that. And it's by God drawing them by his spirit. Look at verse 3 in Psalm 14. You'll hear similar things now. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. If you look at the word corrupt, you've got it in, your, in the ESV there, at least in verse 3. They become corrupt. The Greek translation, there's a Greek, you know, the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, all the squiggly lines, as some professor said, and then it looks like a chicken walked across the page and got dots all over it, and all these looks like code language. But then there was a Greek translation of that, of the Hebrew, and we find that, uh, it's called the Septuagint. Here, it uses this, for this word corrupt, it uses the same word that we've got in Romans 3, in verse 12. It's translated corrupt here, but in Romans it's translated as worthless or useless. Now the idea, I didn't come up with this, the idea that I found, here's the idea. What, what does that mean they become, they turned aside together, they become corrupt. Maybe they just kind of had a bad day, a bad corrupt day. It's like milk that has soured. That's the idea of the corruption here. They're, so, they're worthless. Those that are not righteous, that are in sin, that kind of worthless, it's like milk that has soured. It's the description of all under sin. Milk that has soured is, ah, right? So this is beyond, this is beyond, you know, we're just not living up to our potential. This is milk, sour milk. All right, so that's a little bit of glimpse of where Paul's getting some of these from. You can head back to Romans 3. As we head back here, uh, look at verse 12 again. Just that last verse, no one does good, not even one. That's also in the psalm where we just came from. That's what Paul concludes. And we might ask here just to pause before we look at the rest of it. And Paul's opening, uh, opening argument here. Don't people do some good? Isn't there some good that is done out there? I've seen it. You know, People aren't nasty all the time. That may be true enough, but I want you to listen to how John Phillips answers this question. What, what do you mean, Paul, that no one does good, not even one? He says this, and I hope, hope this is helpful to you. He says, many people think their behavior is right, and so it may be according to human standards. But God does not try men by human standards. He tries them by his own standards of absolute perfection. A self-righteous man once boasted to a Christian friend of his, You know, John, 
he says. I'm not such a bad fellow. There are many worse than I. And his friend replied to him, you are measuring yourself by the wrong standard. You measure yourself by the harlots and drunkards you see on Skid Row, and you feel quite satisfied by comparison. But go, hear this, go and measure yourself alongside Jesus Christ and see how you make out. No person's life, Phillips says, cuts much of a figure when placed alongside the peerless and perfect life of Christ. Mankind may, quote-unquote, do good, but as Louis Burkhoff points out in his book on theology, he says there is no spiritual good. That is good in relation to God. And that's where the good really matters. Our good, even our good, is tainted by sin. And so next to God's standard, his word, which, by the way, that's what God's law, part of it, does for us. It reveals to us just how bad off we are through it. And he'll say, Paul will say at the end, that through the law comes our knowledge of sin, that idea. The standard is God. It's not our neighbor is not our standard to look over at them. It's not our past accomplishments. It's not that we're better than most. So Paul's opening statement seems, seems clear here. But now he's going to prove his point. He's going to just, I think, observe the very acts of people. What do people do? And again, all of these are flowing. Just remember, you can look to the side. Some of you have little scripture references. You can see those flowing out of God's written word. Now, kids, as I go through this part, I'm going to read uh, verses 13 through 17. I want you to listen to the parts of the body that Paul's going to mention here. Listen to what you hear. What's he going to mention here? So, verse 13, back in Romans 3. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Did you hear those parts in there? The throat, the mouth, the lips? I'll be brief, but let me just comment just briefly on, on what's mentioned here uh, by way of helping us just to see what's going on. First of all, the throat is mentioned in verse 13, and it's called an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. And this takes a little thought to think of what, what does that mean, an open grave? I wonder if you remember Martha's response when Jesus, uh, Lazarus had died and he was, he was calling to, to have the stone taken away. Remember Martha's response? She said this, Lord, you know, if you take that stone away, by this time there will be an odor. The dead, don't, it doesn't smell good. There's going to be a stink coming out of that open tomb. And I think that's the idea of the throat being an open grave. When you open your mouth, this stink comes out. Now sometimes in the morning we call it bad breath. And that got me thinking, how does bad breath come about? How does, what causes this? This is interesting. I'm sure that there's all sorts of studies on this, but one answer I found, and maybe it won't surprise you, what causes bad breath comes from the type of food you eat. So 
yes, there's brushing, and it's good to brush your teeth, and your dentist would say floss and do all those things. And, uh, but if you eat certain types of food, the brushing is only going to cover it up for a time. The food gets down, and maybe this gets too gross, but it's in the lungs, and, and then this food is in this system, and then you act, and you breathe. You're just, I'll stand back here, and you're feeling this. You've, that bad breath. So it is with hearts enslaved to sin. Open grave. We gladly eat the fruit of the world or the devil or our own pride and then we exhale like an open grave. Not, we don't exhale God's glory and truths but our own stench from our own open grave type throats. What about the tongue here? Their tongues to deceive. And yes, there is lying. I think the idea here, this maybe they use their tongues to deceive, is the idea of flattery. The flattering kind of a, maybe you think of flattering like lying with a smile. Um, James 3 calls the tongue a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Throat, tongue. He mentions lips. The venom of asps is under their lips. One commentator notes here, in particular, this phrase is interesting, under their lips. That's where, apparently, in snakes, and I'm not a great fan of snakes, but that's where the venom is. It's under, underneath there. And so, in the same way, the sinner, there's, there's this poison in the lips. And he goes, throat to lips, to or throat, to tongue, to lips, to then the mouth. And out erupts out of this mouth this lava, molten lava of the heart, the cursing, the bitterness. And then there's feet that are swift to shed blood. Now this is from Isaiah 59. I'll just read it to you. It says this of those in sin. It says, and you'll hear the similar language, their feet, this is from Isaiah 59, their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Or as Paul puts it, the way of peace they have not known. And so in summary, verse 18 there is no fear of God before their, one last part, their eyes. There's no fear of the Lord. So they replace the Lord with other gods or themselves. Again, this last one even comes from Psalm 36.1. It's really the heart, I think the climax of the unrighteous one. The sinner has no fear of God. Their eyes do not see the glory and judgment of God. They turn away from God to seek their own passions and lusts. So, we've got Paul's opening statement. Exhibits A through Z, or throat through feet to eyes. All of these demonstrate man's heart is enslaved to sin, and now a closing statement. 19 and 20 here. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. When Paul writes of his purpose here in this particular verse that every mouth 
be stopped. It, it would seem that he has in mind, with the mouth being stopped, every, you know, kind of again, who's, who's the audience, who's he aiming at? It seems to be the Jew first and the Gentile and the Greek. Now, those under the law are, would seem to be most nearly the Jew, even though there's a sense, I think, as you look at, well, who's under the law? It speaks to those who are under the law. I think we've looked at before. The Gentiles, too, are under a law, not the written law, but the law written on their heart. Saw that in chapter 2, verse 15. So I, I tend to see here both a, a Jew and Gentile. They're under the law. They've got the law in various ways. They, for sure, they are all, the mouths are stopped. The whole world is accountable. But I just need to note for you, most commentators, so this is where I'm kind of, I, I tend to see both, but I want to just kind of, you know, I don't know everything by far. Um, they see the Jews primarily as referenced here. Those under the law would be primarily the Jewish people. And we say, well, okay, how is this a universal condemnation if Paul's kind of pointing to the Jews again? And again, Doug Moe, I think he, he's helpful to us to try to understand this. And he says this, probably Paul is using an implicit, implicit from the greater to the lesser argument. Now, here's, here's the argument. See if you can follow. If Jews, as God's chosen people, cannot be excluded from the scope of sin's tyranny, then it surely follows that Gentiles who have no claim on God's favor are also guilty. In other words, if the Jew stands condemned, if they stand condemned and they were the, the, the people of God, if they're condemned in their sin and they were under the law, then the Gentile has no chance. That's kind of what he's thinking. Either way, again, to kind of sum up, you, to come back to the text, every mouth is stopped. The whole world, Jew, Gentile, Minnesota, Iowa, wherever, the whole world is accountable to God. And so look at the summary then in verse 20. Paul says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What matters in the end for one who is in the courtroom of God. You see it there? It says, we'll be justified in his sight. Imagine this one in the courtroom of God. What matters is, is this one found to be righteous before the judge or unrighteous? And if unrighteous, then deserving of God's wrath and fury. Paul's closing argument here, it shuts off, it makes void, it, it it shuts off any move towards a righteousness that comes by works of the law. Something that someone does anything. Those nobody will be justified in his sight. Now, it says in the ESV, no human being. It's literally no flesh. So you could put in there, it's literally no body. Nobody. Nobody will be justified, declared righteous. The Jews were given the law on, on the tablets. They were a unique people called out by God. And over and over, though, they failed to do what the law required. The Gentile, given a law on the heart, has a wayward heart, enslaved as well to sin with passions and practices that fully deserve God's wrath. So the law, at least one aspect of it, there's other aspects, but at least... One aspect is, as Paul says, 
brings the knowledge that we desperately need. This knowledge of our sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why do we need saving? The answer is going to depend on how much trouble you think you are in. Let me just help you and me to remember it's, it's worse than we think because I don't think we even understand as we ought to understand just the predicament and the, the, the problem that we are in before an almighty and holy God. We are not, if you'd, maybe some illustration, we're not on a tropical island, a deserted island just waiting for a rescue boat to show up and give us a lift. We are drowning. We're 100 feet deep in the water. We're actually dead in sin. We're drowning, and we're paddling deeper. That's our condition. That's where we're at. We're not just coming to the surface and, and then reaching out a hand, and God's reaching out. We're lost. We're in sin. No one. It, there's no work. There's no swimming that's going to get you justified in that courtroom of God. None is righteous. So moms, you are sinners. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> but moms and dads, children, others that are listening, let me ask you this. Who is it that eats with sinners? Who welcomes sinners like a short man named Zacchaeus? and goes to their house. Who is that? Who says to sinners, come to me? Who draws sinners to himself? Jesus does that. Jesus who died, and Jesus who bore the wrath of God on the cross to justify all who would believe in him. This Jesus comes for sinners. If God has indeed, if he is in his grace, if he has shown to you your sin and your need for Jesus, all the praise and glory goes to him for showing you that. You have in Jesus, if you know Jesus, you have in him what no Facebook post, no accolade of your mothering today, no card, as good as they are, no flowers, they will never fulfill. You have in Christ, if you be in Christ, true peace with God, whose righteous anger and his wrath has been poured out. It's been satisfied by the one who died for you. Today, if, you, if Christ is your Savior, you stand in the courtroom of God, having been declared righteous on account of Jesus through faith in him. And that's what we're going to look at now, as Paul's going to turn a corner, but now. Maybe in some ways it's been a long seven weeks. There's that message again on sin. We're built. Paul's got that foundation. None is righteous. No works of the law will justify, but now. And you can feel free to read ahead. God says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so those ones who have been circumcised, we talked about that the other week, by the Holy Spirit in the heart, what, what happens to them? They, they begin to bear fruit. 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And it, it occurred to me, I think you can test me on this, if we be in Christ by his spirit, let me suggest that we can read this passage backwards that we were just in from 18 back to the top. We can read it backwards in Christ. Let me show you what I mean. That those, those who do fear God, again, by his grace, those who fear God, they know the way of peace. And their feet are swift to promote life. He transforms their mouth to be full of blessing and joy. Their tongues speak truth. Their throat speaks of overcoming the grave. They do good. They live lives of purpose and meaning. They, they turn to God. They seek God. They understand God and they are declared righteous, having been justified by his grace through faith in him, in Christ. What a new man and a new woman and a new mom and a new dad it is to whom God has graciously provided repentance and faith in him. Though we not be in the, in the now, we not be what we, what we will be. We yet struggle in the flesh. We can come to the one who came for us, to Christ. And he is the one disciplining, transforming us into his image as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Don't look to your own faith. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Praise you, God that Romans doesn't end in these verses because it could and you would be perfectly just and right to show us where we have erred and to condemn us forever for that. You are just to do that. And you are full of mercy and steadfast love for sinners who come to you. Lord, thank you for this mercy and grace for moms who look to Christ, for dads, for kids, for anyone who looks to you. We thank you for your gracious hand. And Lord, may we not praise ourselves and begin to think, look at what I am doing. May we remember we have not come near by our own works, but by your work on our behalf, in our heart, on the cross to bring us to you. And we praise you for this, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.